0: Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to The Pre-Med Years. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have an amazing guest today, someone who you're going to be hearing from a lot in the near future, both both here on the Pre-Med Years channel uh, and through Mapped as well. It's our newest advisor, Courtney Lewis. She is coming to us, to the MAPT team as a pre-med advisor, as a former director of admissions at Burrell College of Osteopathic Medicine. Courtney and I met several years ago at a conference, and just jived. Uh, she really believed in the the mission that we have here at Medical School Headquarters, and mapped and in, in, in increasing transparency in the pre med world. And while she loved being a director of admissions, when I reached out to her about needing a new advisor, I wasn't even thinking about her because I figured she was she was happy at her job, which she was. But she was super excited to join us to see what kind of impact she can have on the pre-med world through mapped and MedEd Media and everything else that we're doing here. So we're going to have a great conversation about her role as a director of admissions, mistakes she saw things that stood out, and so much more. These are the episodes I love because it is removing some of the secrecy, the secrecy that you think is out there, because not enough people talk about the admissions world. And so we'll get a little behind-the-scenes look today with Courtney. Again, her role as the Director of Admissions at Burrell College of Osteopathic Medicine. Courtney, welcome to the pre-med years. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. The, the first
0: one. The first one. The first pre-med years. You've joined me one other time, very briefly, on Clubhouse. Way back when Clubhouse was a thing. Yep. Um What what a pandemic app that was. No <laughs> nobody uses it anymore. Uh, but I'm excited to have you. Excited to talk with you, and excited for you to be a part of the Mapped Advising team now. So thank you. Welcome. Yeah, I'm and excited. Yeah, we're going to share all of your wisdom here on this episode today so that uh, you never have to say anything ever again. It's just all going to come out today. (laughs) That's the goal. So, Courtney Lewis, how did you end up in medical education?
1: That's a great question. It was not straightforward, actually. So um, I kind of came about it. I was previously married, and um, my ex-husband was pre-med. And so I learned part of the pathway there. We started a scribe company and worked with a lot of pre-meds that way. And so as, you know, time went on and I kind of hunkered down into what I was interested in, I was always around healthcare, but I knew that I loved higher education and I wanted to gravitate back to that. So when they opened a new med school in the city that I live in, I knew I wanted to be part of it. So I was lucky enough to be hired by them and it merged everything that I loved and um, moved up the ranks that way.
0: Nice. So as a former director of admissions now at an osteopathic medical school, I want to go to the hardest hitting question right away. What is the biggest mistake the students are making when applying to medical school?
1: Oh, goodness. Um, we have to narrow it down to one. <laughs>
0: Just one. Only one.
1: I would say not having somebody kind of proofread or, or help look over their application. Um, I think sometimes... They will leave certain portions blank or think other sections are more important than others or maybe not have somebody read their personal statement and see if it kind of matches up with the tone or the wording that they use in secondaries and things like that. And so when you're comparing so many people with similar stats, it's always good to have another set of eyes because that's when, you know, little things like typos or using the wrong school name and stuff like that really become blaring red flags. Um, Even though you've already invested all this money all this time and it was just a little blip, it's always good, I think, to have somebody kind of look over it. But I've got a lot more kind of secondary and third tier things if we need those.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. So that really happens? People will copy and paste and not change school names?
1: Yeah. Oh yeah.
0: (laughs) That stings. That really, really stings.
1: (laughs) It's really rough.
0: Yeah. So as a director of admissions at an osteopathic medical school, one of the biggest myths that I think potentially myths that, that I'm squashing every day uh, directly from the uh, Association of American Colleges of Osteopathic Medical Schools is that they, they told me at one point I met him at a conference. They're so like, Ryan, tell everyone you don't need Uh, a a DO letter of recommendation to apply to DO schools. That seems to be this perpetuating myth. Although ARCOM, Arkansas College of Osteopathic Medicine, I think according to the Choose DO Explorer, is still the one holdout that that requires a DO letter. Talk about for students out there who are struggling finding DO shadowing, struggling to get a DO letter. Do they have a chance of getting into a DO school?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of DO colleges now that kind of... There's a preference or they remove it altogether. And so um, particularly during COVID, I think a lot of people kind of took a magnifying glass to their prereqs and letters of recommendation and things like that on what we were requiring applicants to submit. And so I think a lot of schools have kind of transitioned away from that requirement or just left it as a preference or preferred or suggested um, and kind of changed their wording on that. So I do think that there are a lot more opportunities to not have to have that in your packet of letters. Um, For those that do require a DO letter of recommendation for those schools. There are ways for applicants to kind of get in touch with osteopathic physicians in their state. There's a lot of state-run osteopathic foundations and organizations that a lot of the physicians are part of and they have registries where you can look up people that would be in your area. And so we always suggest to kind of start there if you're having to submit a deal letter of recommendation.
0: Yeah, it's a, a great suggestion. Something I talk about all the time is go to the state medical board and the osteopathic world has its own kind of side of things that uh, you can go find some physicians and do, do some research, do some homework. Don't just cold email people and go, Hey, can I shadow? Hey, can I shadow? Hey, can I shadow? back? Like, hey, Dr. Smith, I saw you do X, Y, and Z. And it really interests me because of whatever. Um, mm-hmm. So make it as personalized as possible. So when it comes to talking about why Dio Let's talk about some of the struggles that students have talking about YDO. Because I read lots of YDO secondary essays, and yeah. they get very basic very quickly. It's like, I like the DO philosophy. I'm like, okay, what what is that? What does it mean to you? What, what are some mistakes or, or suggestions you have for that sort of topic?
1: Okay, so <laughs> let's just start off right away. It's always good to read the tenets of osteopathic medicine. I think that that gives you a point of reference on what the foundation is on the teaching style, um, how you're going to be taught medicine and your practice and things like that. Not all of the time are you going to be using osteopathic manipulative medicine, depending on what you go into, but it's what most schools say is that they teach you another set of tools Mm -hmm. using your hands as, you know, ways to heal and diagnose is never a bad thing for your patients in the future. But since, you know, so many things you, you apply to the same residency programs and things like that, you're going to have all of the same rights. Um, What we don't like to see, especially at the, the DO schools is when they say, you know, or they kind of talk bad about their MD counterparts, those are still your peers. And so a lot of the times we have MDs on our faculty, they will be instructing you and in no way is there animosity and um, in no way do we frown upon how they see patients or anything like that. And so I think a lot of the times, applicants will try to put down one or the other As as being better or preferred when really it's just kind of a philosophy in in teaching and learning and then you know the 200 additional hours so I would avoid doing those types of things you don't have to hate the MD track you don't have to say that you want to, you know, do preventative medicine and you don't want to see your patients as just symptoms. MDs don't do that either. And so um, I, I would say be careful in your wording and that as far as positives, it's always nice to know how somebody plans to implement Osteopathic manipulative medicine, or again, has read the tenants, has looked up, you know, the curriculum and how that's presented and how they feel like they would use it in the future. It's not just for rural medicine, it's not just for family medicine or anything like that, but there are some benefits of having that in your arsenal if you plan to go into that in the future.
0: Yeah, I I think students think that osteopathic or all admissions committees are are dumb and they're like, I'm going to, I'm going to tell them that I love do, and they're going to think that I didn't even apply to MD schools. I'm like, they, <laughs> they know, they know. Come on. Um, I see it a lot. Students will throw in the comparisons. I'm like, the secondary essay did not ask you, the prompt did not ask you to compare MD versus Dio. Just ask your thoughts on Dio. You don't need to compare because it does exactly what you're saying is it looks like you're putting down the MD counterparts. I'm like, they're not asking for that because they know that that you don't need to do that. So I yeah. I, I love that. I love that. So let's talk about your outlook, right? Courtney Lewis's outlook on, on medical education from an admission standpoint. Who was your like oh my gosh, I need to talk to this person applicant?
1: For applicants? Yeah. There's actually been quite a few, but usually, you know, it happens in health fairs. I was somebody who liked to actually go to the health fairs and and interface with people because I feel like, you know, that's such a good opportunity to really get past the initial kind of vague or general questions and get into the nitty gritty of somebody's learning style and how the curriculum is presented and what they're really looking for in a student body and environment. So I don't know if I have any one that I can single out. I know that, you know, watching them matriculate and since the DO program at my college was the only program that we had. So, you know, I've got people that are two years going into their third year of residency all the way back to this class that just matriculated for class of 2026. And so I've been able to watch their journey all the way through and, you know, I've recruited in New York and Rhode Island and all along the East Coast and Florida and all along the West Coast and everywhere in between. And so, you know, being a private college kind of allowed us to to branch out and talk to people. But it's nice when people attend those types of events and actually wanna chat or come up with questions um, so that you get to know them a bit better and kind of can help them along their journey.
0: Yeah. what What is it on paper that you see that makes you go, oh yeah, like I, I want to talk to this person?
1: Past metrics, obviously, because I know that there's a lot that goes into that. Luckily, you know, we we would be able to balance that and the application has a tremendous amount of information. So I always liked to see that somebody had actually, specifically for the secondaries, had actually done some research on the school and said, this is the club that I wanted to get involved in, or this faculty member is doing this type of research, and I have a background in this, and I would love to be able to do that or connect with the anatomy. So just showing, even if it was just five minutes, that they went on to the actual website, found how they would plug themselves in or what they wanted to do if they were to be accepted, I think really goes a long way and and comes across as a lot more genuine. Um, In the actual application, I liked to always kind of look at what they were able to balance at the same time So, you know, maybe their credit hours were right at 12 and they were never, you know, 15 or 18 hours. But if they were working or had an internship and were doing this and balancing this, and then they also had extracurriculars or volunteer things going here and there, that's the type of student that, that I actually really like seeing because we're asking them to do something very similar once they get into med school which is balance a lot. It's not just school, it's your own mental, physical and spiritual well-being, it's joining clubs, doing research, doing things in the summer and and keeping up your family relations and so it's It's not just one thing that you're being asked to balance in your personal life. So having evidence of that already in the application was something that I definitely uh, gravitated for and and looked um, favorably on.
0: Yeah. I, I don't think pre-meds understand how much medical school is just pre-med 2.0. Like Here, you're studying for a big test, actually three of them. You are shadowing, getting clinical experiences, re- doing research, volunteering, because there's this thing called the match process that you have to go through to apply for I, residencies. And so I, it's basically all the same stuff Uh it just amplified a little bit with, with potentially some higher stakes. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's definitely a lot that students need to balance all of that. And then definitely. So, so there, there are lots of students that I see. They end up on application renovation a lot because they're 4.0 students, 520, 515, super great stats, but there's nothing else in their application. And, and they, they think like, oh look, I'm a smart person. You're going to want me. It sounds like that's a mistake to think like that. Why why is that?
1: Yeah, if if especially if sections are left blank or really lacking, it comes across as really unbalanced. Again, we're looking for people that that can balance a lot at once and we're putting a lot of trust and faith in them as as an applicant but also as a student because they're going to go out with their name, you know, or your institution's name going into third year. and and function in a actual working healthcare facility. And so you wanna make sure that that people are engaged with the community, they can work in a team environment, that they're able to balance lots of things at one time, and um, they haven't been so hyper-focused on just any one thing that something else really fell by the wayside. There there needs to kind of be more, more balance in their lifestyle because, you know, in med school, so I hear (laughs) it can really consume you. Right. And you can get so bogged down that other things start falling behind and then it becomes, uh, it escalates really quickly if you start getting behind. And so just seeing that somebody is active and engaged on multiple levels and, and things like that, and not really has a deficit in any huge areas is, is a good thing.
0: Yeah. One of those big areas that I talk a lot about uh, just conversations over the years with deans and directors of admissions is lack of clinical experience Just students, making sure that they enjoy taking care of people. Have you seen students over the years where you accept them? Maybe they lack some clinical experience, but everything else looked great. And then, you potentially have conversations with them later on, and they're like, Yeah, I don't know if this is for me.
1: Sure. I think there's always going to be a little bit of that. And, you know, having worked in different scribe healthcare settings myself, I know that you can have the same specialty and be in a different work environment, yeah. and it can be completely different in your day to day. And so just having that breadth of different settings and working with different people, I think is, is helpful just in getting kind of your gauge of, of the day to day and how they can differ depending on where you're at. But yeah, there's definitely been some times where um, people get into it and, and they like certain aspects more than others, some of which are, are prolonged patient care or, um, things like that. So they gravitate either towards certain specialties or, you know, there's always those rare circumstances where people do remove themselves completely and kind of go a separate way, but you hope that you catch them before, you know, there's so much money invested and and so much time and things. That's why we tend to look on clinicals to make sure that they do have at least some knowledge of what they're getting into.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Talk about the, uh, osteopathic school that you came from, relatively new in the grand scheme of things. There are new schools opening every year, every couple of years. And there's always some hesitation. Should I apply to a new school? What's going to happen? Are they going to get their full accreditation after that first class graduates? Talk about uh, what that process is like uh, to hopefully maybe ease some concerns for medical students applying to and going to new medical schools.
1: Okay, so um, this is a question that that we definitely had in something that was a little bit of an uphill battle for a while. so, When you're looking at schools, what was nice about ours is that we did have to go through the accreditation process with um, what's called the COCA. And so they come, they dig through all your files, all your processes year to year, and you have to hit benchmarks as you go throughout that. Sometimes when branch campuses or additional locations are opened up, if they have that, that main heading school and it's just something the accreditation is just tagged onto that. Now, there's benefits and there's some negatives that probably go along with that. If the main institution and everything filters over really seamlessly, that's really great. If it doesn't, they don't have the same kind of accreditation checks that you would if somebody was coming year to year if you were a standalone college. So that's something to look at. But each one, I mean, there's curriculum. A lot of faculty will you know, transition here and there. Sometimes you have people that are there 20, 30, 40 years, and they're looking for new schools to go to. So you kind of get a mix of a bunch of different things. But I'd always look at the curriculum and how it's being presented and what resources are available. And, um, you know, if they have a trust set up in case they don't get accreditation, are they going to be able to reimburse you? Things like that go on. Um, But there are checks and balances definitely set up through the COCA that that go through that but i always appreciated it because being from a private institution none of that information was filtering down so i wanted to make sure that we were on par with all of the other schools but um but really it's it's still on the applicant it's the same if you're at an institution that's been around for 40 years versus something that's been around for five you're going to have to put in the work and so there is some hustle that's going to be required of you with the newer school. Some of the, the pathways or clubs and organizations and charters maybe haven't been set up like they are at other institutions, but on the flip side, that gives you a chance to serve in a leadership capacity and start a chapter and get really involved, which was what a lot of our students did. And now, you know, they serve on a lot of national boards and things like that. So it's just depending on what you want. Some people need, that structure that very tailored thing some people are a little bit more open to helping build you know a program and starting the new chapters and mm-hmm. things like that so
0: yeah. And, and COCA is is the LCME equivalent for the osteopathic medical schools for people to go yeah. Google and, and find out. And I, I think students don't understand the amount of work that goes into just being able to get the preliminary accreditation to accept their first class. So uh, there, there's typically if if a school gets that preliminary accreditation, you shouldn't have any fears that things are going to work out okay. Historically, medical schools are doing fine getting that full accreditation, although there's one one school right now that's uh, struggling a little bit. Um, so uh, hopefully they, they figure things out and can get their full accreditation soon. So l- yeah. let's talk about um, this transition for you going from director of admissions at an osteopathic medical school to now pre-med advisor, hanging out with the MAP team. What is your passion in the pre-med world?
1: So I actually started at the med school as an advisor, and I went from that into assistant director and then to director, um, and then I served on a couple of the national councils and things and elected positions. But as my job got more and more administrative and process and while those things are are wonderful and I could make sure that we um, had a process that I was really proud of to, to run applicants through, I really missed engaging with applicants and being able to give them this kind of peek behind the veil of, of what we're really looking for and provide that transparency and, and coaching and advising that that I used to be able to. And so helping them navigate before they get the no answer Usually there's just a handful of things that if they, you know, if they spent a little bit of time or if somebody had given them the information, they would be successful. And so I really wanted to get back into the roots of that and and be able to share that knowledge with pre-men. So yeah. that's, that's why I made the jump.
0: One of the things that you did uh, at the at the medical school was increase a, a diversity a bunch in your <laughs> classes. Why is that so important for you?
1: It's part of the mission of this school, and I wanted to make sure that that we were actually delivering on on what we were saying. I come from an underrepresented and underserved background, and I also grew up in low socioeconomic areas. And so I'm acutely aware of of what resources and advising are available from elementary school on and what aren't. And so I wanted to make sure that, that we were taking into account when we were were reviewing applicants and working with them and advising them that we were transparent enough in what we were looking for and and working with the right people um, where we knew that we had resources available also on the back end and that's not just for underserved that's for all students that were coming in but I wanted to make sure that we were actually delivering on what we were saying and sometimes that meant looking at you know what students were balancing all at one time. Maybe it wasn't the highest GPA, but they were able to maintain a really still very strong GPA while they were also doing all of these other things and they've been so successful. So just bucking the system maybe a little bit, um, but having a lot of success in doing that. So not being afraid of, of things that may be perceived as risk factors, which didn't end up being so. so.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about bucking the system with, with a B. Bucking um, yes. one of the my, one of my biggest complaints of the osteopathic medical world, medical school world, and and I think I've told you this before, is the deposits that osteopathic schools require. the The MD world, AMCAS or AMC has, has some regulations around that. Uh, how can we get osteopathic schools on board with some some regulations from higher up?
1: I don't know if you're ever going to be able to do that. To be perfectly honest, um, because you have private schools, which can be investor-owned, um, you know, everybody sets something different. Sometimes they are fees that are separate from tuition. Other times, the deposit rolls into tuition, so it's a down payment, basically, on that. So, um, you know, applicants can make sure that they're looking at. Um, what the money's going towards and if it actually does roll into things, but that's something that's set outside of admissions, unfortunately. And it's usually set by a board of trustees and is a bit outside of our control and it's going to be different for a lot of schools. And so, yeah. um, I know that the topic has come up definitely on a national scale numerous times and it's, it's gone to the deans and things like that. So I know it's at least on their radar, but um. It depends probably
0: on boards of trustees and owners. Yeah. Well, let's talk about a little bit of that, right? Because board of trustees isn't necessarily a for-profit, non-profit thing, but having investors in a school potentially is a, a differentiator between for-profit, and non-profit. One of the biggest concerns of osteopathic medical schools where students are like, well, I don't know if I want to apply to those schools, is that a lot of them are private, for-profit uh, uh-huh. schools. In your mind, is that a differentiator students should be looking at?
1: I don't think so. Personally, I came from one of those schools and I know that our ownership was wonderful. And And really, they shouldn't be impacting. They're, they're there to, to fund it and make sure that you have the resources. But other than that, they're not involved in you know the setting of your curriculum in the week and things like that and so especially for poor states like new mexico that was the only way our med school was going to open we needed investors to be able to provide that capital to get the building up get it running make sure uh, the students had what they needed and so it provided us a way where we needed physicians and medical education to get that up and running. Now, I don't know about other schools and their owners. Ours was an endowment. It was a higher education endowment and then a fund. And so it wasn't just kind of a bunch of random people that were looking to turn a fast dime or anything like that. And so you can actually look into the ownership and who sits on the boards of trustees of these schools. So if there is any hesitation or they start getting compared, I heard Some people comparing them to Caribbean schools or things like that. It's just absolutely not the case. But that information is all public. You can absolutely look it up. Everybody's really transparent about it. And so I would just call the school or, you know, do some research because all of that information is available. But it, it didn't affect our students. It affected them favorably. It wasn't something that affected their education at all.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely think Caribbean schools have given the for-profit world a, a bad rap for medical schools, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, unfortunately.
0: So yeah. let's talk about the the pre-med world. Uh, I, I talk a lot about collaboration, not competition. Uh, we met at a conference where I, I spoke about transparency in, in the medical school, school admissions world. Why do you think there is not more transparency from medical schools for who they're looking for in terms of students, whether it's stats, whether it's activity hours, stuff like that.
1: I think everybody's motivation is probably slightly different. Um, But the more granular you get on your website and the harder it is to give you the latitude to view everybody. So it's a bit counterintuitive. You know, I, I was one that wanted to be really transparent, here's exactly what we're looking for, write it down, but then you end up with somebody who doesn't fit within those exact perimeters and then you don't want to get yourself in a situation, so leaving it vague does kind of give you the latitude to look at more applicants in general, but I do understand that it's a bit confusing for the applicants. it's tough. And I do think that each school's motivation is is a bit different. But for the most part, we're all driven to want to give ourselves the biggest pool that we can of the applicants that are coming in without, you know, ruling them out over just a fine line of detail.
0: Yeah. And so so to paraphrase what you're saying for students, if on your website you say our our cutoff for GPA is a three our cutoff for MCAT is a five hundred, you get a, a super non-traditional student with a 499 MCAT score who y- with everything else, you're like, Oh my gosh, this is the perfect applicant. And you're like, well, we set our cutoffs 500. So we can't look at this person. That's what yes. you're saying, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a bummer which is where the, the, the uh, legalese comes into play is like historically our range of applicants is 3.0 and 500. And there are times where we will look at other <laughs> other things to to buck that trend or whatever. Um, yes yeah, we, we got to get some some legal uh, minds on it.
1: That's why that wording is the way that it is and it leaves it so vague and so general is because if, if we are concrete, and we we give a finite number that will yeah that will be it.
0: That's
1: and it. Nothing underneath yeah. can be reviewed. And so um, again, sometimes those decisions are made outside of the control of the people that are actually you know processing the application by a governance council, by a board of trustees, by you know the dean and things like that. Where they've just been mm-hmm. in place forever. And so um, we always want to be very thoughtful when we're giving very concrete. Um, or specific numbers yeah. or metrics or requirements.
0: Yeah. Talk, talk about that for a second, because I think that's something that, again, I've had lots of conversation with deans and directors over time. And it's very interesting to hear where some of this information is is being uh, kind of directed from, like the, the board of trustees or, or some sort of board of directors saying, hey, like we want our average MCAT score to be a 521, like make it happen who's dictating that kind of stuff and why are they dictating those things?
1: It's, it's going to be different at each school. You can kind of have a different process. Um, I think for the most part, it, it does fall under leadership in whatever form that does. Luckily admissions can usually, you know, we have the data, we have the numbers, all of the applications that came in, and we can provide that information to say, you know, We can break it down any number of ways. So what I used to do is say, okay, if you want the cutoff to be this on this metric, here's everybody that we would lose out on. Are you comfortable with that? Mm -hmm. Or is this something where, you know, it wasn't just fully thought through on, um, what else you would also be missing out on or what else it would rule out and so having a bigger picture and being able to break down all of that information in the metrics is is what you hope to be able to provide to them to give them a really informed decision when they're doing that you know at my institution we were able to kind of set um you know i would put down what what i thought was was going to be good i would provide that to a governance council they would go over it once they approved everything then it would get Uh, put up to the board of trustees who, you know, usually didn't have any qualms. But um, yeah, it's in the running of med schools and setting of things. There's a a lot of decision makers that come into play, some of which are reading your application and some of which aren't. Yeah.
0: yeah. From a data perspective, I, I always talk about medical schools will have whatever cutoffs they potentially have. They know based on students that they've accepted their GPAs who are successful in their class, the MCAT scores that are successful in their class, are admissions committees tracking that sort of data of like, okay, we accepted Johnny. That's one of the lowest GPAs we've ever accepted. Let's see how Johnny does. And then he's the valedictorian or the graduates first in the med school. You're like, oh, I guess that was not as big of a problem. And so maybe that opens you up to be a little bit more flexible moving forward. Are you tracking that sort of data?
1: Yep. I can tell you for a fact that, that we definitely do. I know, I know schools are deep in those numbers. Um, speaking from my own experience, you know, we had people with 498 MCATs, which may be untouchable to some schools and now they are physicians and it's not just, you know, they matched into specialties and, and they did really well on their complex 410s. So it's, We track all of that. We looked at the resources that they utilized, if they had to go to any academic advising or extra sessions or anything like that, um, how many interviews they got when they were going into the match. So all of that is tracked and usually institutions will have departments or personnel that specifically track all of those metrics all the way through from application on through to match and also into residency since they still have to test while they're in residency. Yeah. So all of those numbers are available. Yeah. And they're tracked.
0: The double AMC who creates the MCAT has data that says, Hey, the MCAT is one of the most predictive tests out there in terms of student success. Do you see that in, in the data?
1: You know, there's, I think there's something to be said For being able to take standardized tests, because you're going to have to take so many as a medical student and then on through the future as a physician, there needs to be some element where where you can sit and and sit for a standardized test and and perform well. It's usually, um, from what we've seen, not necessarily a content thing. It's a test-taking thing. And so there is something to be said for that. I do think that there is some value in that, but there's been so much research done that, you know, some say it's really beneficial. Others say there's not much correlation. Some say, you know, anything above a 24 or 500, there's not necessarily correlation, but um, I think a lot will depend on the type of student or the type of applicant that you're dealing with when, when you get into those circumstances. Cause we've seen people that had really amazing numerical metrics that that didn't perform well. And yep. so it's a lot mindset. Um, so there's there's a lot to be said on the topic. There's a lot of information out there. Um, it's definitely something that I would love to conduct personal research on and, and was hoping to get to do that in the future because I, I think we could broaden some views on that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited for Mapped app and its future, because hopefully we'll get a lot of data so we can do some some research and pull in data sets and stuff from there. So I'm excited for that. As as you look forward, uh, as you're starting here at Mapped as an advisor, when you think about the types of students that you're super excited to meet with and work with one on one. Who is that student? What, where are they in their journey? What are they struggling with? Who are they from a socioeconomic or uh, underrepresented background? Who who is that person?
1: Honestly, I mean, the the pageant response. is anybody. Mm -hmm. I I am excited to work with anybody and everybody. I'm just excited to work with pre-meds in general, um, people that are you know starting kind of early on maybe they're they're not applying this specific cycle but the next one you can kind of give them advice so you know if they do need to take one more class or or do something or kind of pivot before they're in an active application that's always beneficial i love getting the information to people before, um, they're having to backtrack and and there's already money invested and things like that. I definitely like working with people that, that want to kind of get into the nitty gritty or, or maybe have a blip or two and they want to know how to play to their strengths or overcome that because I do think that a lot of those things can be overcome. Um, it's in wording, it's in being really self-aware, it's in identifying or thinking like the admissions committee and, and, you know, playing to your strengths and removing that red flag or removing that worry um, to kind of showcase the type of student that you are now and what they'd actually be getting. So um, I'm open to anyone and everyone, even people that are really polished and they have everything good to go. And this is, you know, maybe a reapplicant or something like that, or they've been really proactive, it's always good to still get a second set of eyes on it and get a different perspective just in going over that type of stuff. So yeah. I'm, again, I'm just excited to actually interface with people again.
0: Yeah. And for someone listening to this, uh, Courtney, you'll probably be heavily involved as you're beginning uh heavily involved in the mapped app chat advising so anyone can go if you're a mapped app pro level or if you're in a free trial for mapped app you get uh, the chat advising to chat with one of our advisors and courtney will be in there a lot if you have specific osteopathic questions where where courtney's an expert or just admissions in general obviously a, a big part of your your expertise as we wrap up here, what kind of final words of wisdom do you have for that student so that if if they are someone who maybe has a blip in their record or is starting to stumble and they're they're questioning their ability to get into medical school, what what kind of what kind of final words of wisdom do you have for them?
1: It's doable. I think it's you know, sometimes it takes a little bit more time. It takes a little bit of extra effort or it takes, um, you know, identifying things. But if you're willing to invest in yourself, invest the time, invest, you know, doing what you need to do to overcome those things for whatever reason they happen, it's totally doable. It's it's just realizing and, and coming to terms, I think, with, with being self-aware enough and, and willing to invest that time. Um, into actually doing the things that you will need to do to, to overcome whatever it is. And so I like working with those types of people. I know that, you know, there's maturity that comes with life experience or, you know, if people have made mistakes or didn't know how GPAs worked and really started off really low and are now having to kind of backtrack or career changers or anything like that, or people that had, you know, all the time to spend on academics and they're really lacking in other areas. I think it's it's so nice to have kind of all of the background knowledge that that you and I have. And we can look at an application and say, okay, here's where your high yield areas are and, and this is what you're gonna need to do or this is what an admissions committee is is maybe gonna perceive when they see this. So let's redirect for the remaining, you know, 100 hours or a few weeks that you have left to, to do that. So. It's definitely doable. I think the app is a great resource because the admissions process is so complex and there's so much that goes into it. And it's a tremendous amount of information that being able to lay it out and and have assistance or be able to ask questions before you're in active application or even while you're in an active application, having somewhere um, to lay it out is going to be really helpful for people because it's a lot. And you know, just at my school, we would get four to 6,000 applicants for 162 to 200 seats. And everybody looks good. You know, everybody has good letters of recommendation. So it's, it's just being smart with your application, making sure you're turning in something polished, but also uniquely your own.
0: All right. there you have it. Again, Courtney Lewis, before we end here, I want to talk about the MCAT minute real quick brought to you by Blueprint MCAT. As we're recording this, as this is coming out, we're getting later, later in the year. If you are planning on taking the MCAT in August or later for this application cycle, the 2022-2023 application cycle, I want to caution you, it's getting late. Start thinking about potentially slowing down making sure that you're going to do what's best for your MCAT score and for your application. And sometimes that means slowing down. If you run over to blueprintmcat.com, go sign up for a free account and use their study planner tool to see what you'll need to do to make yourself as successful as possible. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years.